0: Welcome to uh, Mediation Station tonight. This is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member Also, visit YouTube channels under CHHA and also under Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either SoundCloud.com or iTunes under podcasts. We also have a Twitter account, so you can check in at Fenton Mediation. So give us a tweet. I tweeted. Did you tweet?
1: I tweeted. What did you tweet? I tweeted um, something about about me and, and no. <laughs> and the twit <laughs> beside me, no, 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 no. I tweeted that we are we are getting ready to start a yeah, show. Yeah. And what's listening. what's your
0: Twitter account name?
1: Oh lordy, I don't know. I'm not a tweeter. I'm. I'm <laughs> <I laughs> All <Alright. laughs> It's uh, it's something. It's yeah. at Joan F Cass.
0: Okay. So if people wanna if check people you wanna out, check check if they out. follow you, they can do so.
1: Yeah. Joan F is in Francis, which is my middle name.
0: All right. Tonight, we're going to talk about influences on mediation. Our visitor calling in, Gary. Are you there, Gary?
2: I'm here. Happy to be with you.
0: Thank you for doing so. Appreciate it. How about you share some of the kinds of things that you're involved with professionally?
2: Sure. Well, (laughs) I'm 62 years of age. I'm involved in a lot of things, but at the end of the day, I'm a social worker. And as a social worker, I help people to get along, I help people to feel better about themselves. I do a lot of work with uh, separated or separating parents, uh, particularly in dispute over the care of their children between them. And so from that perspective, I wade into their conflicts uh, in the role of uh, mediator.
0: So as a third party, you don't take sides, right?
2: No, I don't take sides whatsoever. As I say, I don't have a dog in your fight. Um, I'm here to help the two of you uh, figure out what's going on and what you want to do about that and how you want to resolve um, the issues before you.
0: So, how do you not get caught up in the, uh, the uh, energy that people bring into their conflicts?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, that's a good question. And, and the way to not get caught up in their negativity or one side or the other is by not being invested in the outcome. Um, rather than being invested in, in the outcome, as a mediator, we're invested in the process. So we're there to keep um, the conversation civil and to forever look to try and clarify uh, what one or other party may be saying to make sure that it is well understood um, and, and delivered uh, reasonably between them.
0: So, do you see that if there's something that you bring? into your professional practice as to an approach to work with people experiencing conflict?
2: <clears throat> yeah, there is something that I bring and I refer to it as my calm. Uh, so I bring my calm to the, to the situation. And so as one or other side may be feeling anxious, nervous, depressed, uh, worried, angry, uh, by my bringing my calm, uh, the language I like to use is they get to borrow my calm. And in borrowing my calm, it um, often helps people to uh, in a sense relax, slow down, uh, think about where they are and where they want to go. Versus, you know, when we come in loaded with emotion, um, those emotions look to be discharged without much thought. So by my bringing in the calm, it allows their emotion to often dissipate so that they can have a more reasonable conversation about the matters before them.
0: Well, I think that, you know, when two people are experiencing these tensions within their relationship, the last thing they need is somebody else who is exhibiting and experiencing the same kind of, you know, temperature in terms of their nature, too.
2: (laughs) You know, it reminds me of a story. I remember growing up, uh, my mom was uh, broiling a steak in the... uh, in the oven for my dad and uh, the grease caught fire and she you know pulled the the rack out of the oven, the steak is burning and my mom is uh, she's panicking and she's about to throw some baking soda on it my dad comes in ever so calm and says no no not baking soda, you'll ruin the steak he gets the dinner plate turns it over on top of the steak And it extinguishes the fire, no harm, no foul. And so, you know, you talk about what do you bring to the party? How are you going to extinguish the fire so that you can still enjoy the meal? And, you know, that lesson from my parents' kitchen has served me well since childhood.
0: Yeah, I I can see totally how that you, you know, you're, you're connected to people in one vein, and at the same time you're disconnected because you're not going to take ownership for their lived experiences or their feelings and what they're going through. Though at the same time, I think it's important to show some empathy and compassion. So that's the connection part.
2: Yes, absolutely. And so I do feel for you, but I'm not you. And um, what would work for me doesn't necessarily work for you. So, So what is right for me is irrelevant. It's what is right for you and how, how are the two of you going to sort that out. And, you know, if you go to court, um, people get into this all or none thinking, black and white, win or loser. And as soon as you're in that paradigm, someone is ha- may be happy at the end of it and someone is very unhappy. And so you have to ask yourself, the one who's unhappy, can they truly live with the outcome? And very often, the answer is no. And so if they can't live with the outcome, that really means that the conflict is going to be ongoing. What I tell folks in mediation is um, you want to achieve an outcome that you can live with. You don't have to love it, but can you find something that you can live with? And, And very often, once both persons realize that it's not about winning or losing, but finding something that we can both live with, That way, both parties can support the outcome.
0: Well, as long as they also don't see the outcome, or let's just say they go through court and they have a decision made, that they see that as winning over the other person and succeeding and, you know, taking that kind of mindset into the furthering of their relationship, especially as co-parents.
2: Right, right. At the end of the day, you know, kids look up, I'm half this parent, I'm half that parent. You know, if... If those parents aren't on an equal footing and I'm half a beach, I look inside of myself and I say, I'm unbalanced. And that that lack of balance that befalls the child comes out in the child as attitude, negative feelings, behavior, lack of concentration. And so it really is important for parents to find the balance so that the child can experience
0: that. Well, you know when kids are obviously picking up from those to whom they look up to their mentors and their parents are generally those people, and if they see their two parents struggling when a relationship has transitioned from being together to now being independence, and then there's this friction and tension, you know how does a child who loves both you know navigate that kind of thing?
2: yeah, and you know um, part of what I do as a mediator because I you know I also bring. Um, a lot of knowledge and experience in terms of uh, working with children, and so sometimes we do education. We, you know, even as the mediator, which is not the same as taking sides, but to explain to the parents the experience of the child, how that when the parents are in conflict and it's unremitting conflict, it is very disturbing. It is very scary to the child, and so that's why we we suggest to parents to to find strategies or, or use strategies like mediation because it, temp- it it typically lowers the temperature, it lowers the conflict to which those kids are exposed. And, and in so doing, uh, the life is less scary for the kids.
0: Talking with Gary Dierenfeld, what's the uh, line, if you want to call it, that people end up crossing, or where it crosses, where people become, that relationship is negatively impacted?
2: Yeah, so, you know, there's many ways to answer that. Um, let, let me step back for a bit. How we are socialized, um, the family that we grow up in, determines how we see the world. Um, by way of uh, example, I'm Jewish, I grew up at Bathurst and Wilson in Toronto, it's the Jewish part of town. Uh, my mom's Jewish, my brothers are Jewish, my dad is Jewish. Um, From from kindergarten through to grade 6, everyone was Jewish in my classroom. There was only one non-Jewish student. So it developed in me the thinking that the whole world is Jewish, which Mm -hmm. is odd. Mm -hmm. So we take our personal experience and we extrapolate, and we also think that it's a common experience. Everyone shares the same point of view. Then we enter into a relationship. But the thing is, the person with whom we're in a relationship, they grew up in a different family, different structure, different point of view. And at the same time, they're extrapolating and believing that their experience is also shared and common and that you share in that as well. So I have my experience, you have your experience, and then we get married or then we cohabit. And then we realize there is a disparity, there is a difference, in terms of how we see the world, how we interact in it, what our goals may be, and how we want to affect those goals. Take parenting, for example. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was spanking, maybe there wasn't spanking, maybe there was yelling and shouting, maybe there was listening and, and uh, problem-solving. So, so whatever our worldview is, whatever um, style we grew up in, we expect the other to automatically share. And these form uh, expectations, unwritten expectations we have on each other. And then when we don't perform according to the expectation of the other, this is ripe right for conflict. Now, when does it become unremitting? When does it become problematic? When we switch from listening and discussing and talking as a way to resolve it, and move on to a belief system that what I grew up with, or my way of looking at the world, is the way of looking at the world, and we're no longer listening to our partner. We get uh, into what we call positional thinking. I'm right, you're wrong.
0: So when people are going through these kinds of things, and it crosses that line into becoming problematic or negative, what do you think people are trying to attain when they're experiencing, quote, this kind of conflict? You know, they're, they're trying to resolve their own, what
2: we call cognitive dissonance. Uh, two things aren't going together, and those two things are my worldview, my expectations, and yours. And so very often what we're trying to resolve is uh, that worldview. I'm trying to cause you to fit into my way of seeing the world. And you are resisting because you're doing the same for your part. And, and you know, this is the creation of conflict. We've stopped listening to each other. We've, we've, we have, um, we, we don't recognize that we are so locked into a point of view that we can't hear the view of the others. And we are looking at it through a lens that says one is right, one is wrong, or one is good, and one is bad, versus versus a lens that says, maybe they're just different. And how do we negotiate those differences? Or under which circumstances might this point of view view, uh, uh, be more functional, and under a different set of circumstances might that point of view be more functional? So we have to change our mindset. We have to show uh, more flexibility in our thinking in order to resolve those conflicts And we also have to be more empathetic, which means being able to truly listen and understand uh, the view of the other.
0: So as part of people's lived experiences, what kinds of things that uh, people have previously or are going through do they bring into a mediation process or of their conflict?
2: Yeah, so in terms of those lived experiences, um, you know, as it pertains to parenting, it could be on the issue of spanking. I was hit as a kid and, and I'm fine, so what's the And maybe the other person was hit to the point of abuse and will not see it as fine, or alternately was not hit at all, had, had parents that would negotiate um, or, or uh, uh, levy a response cost. You, you, you lose a privilege versus being hit. And so, so we have to, um, you know, these lived experiences. And so dictate what we think is appropriate in any given circumstance. The challenge is realizing that there are these other different points of view, and, I, and I'll go back to the flexible thinking uh, that that I can say to myself: Okay, despite how I think this should be done, what are some uh, alternate strategies? What bad would happen if we were to give them a try?
0: Well, the thing is that uh, I think it's important that for people to realize that. They don't walk through life uh, in silos, That they engage, they interact, they're affected, they're constantly being affected by their environment, and, which is comprised of other people.
2: Well, you know, that's true in some respects and not true in, in others, because many people do live in silos. And so uh, our family can be a silo, our immediate uh, community can be a silo, our faith group can be a silo. Our professional um, affiliations can be silos, and so all of these silos influence particular points of view. That when we meet with folks um, who've been brought up in other silos, and I, I like the word ponds. I, I say that we're all raised in a in a pond, and the pond is our family, our community, our faith group, our education. Um, so. So when we meet people from other ponds, to realize that there are a multitude of ponds out there. Um, Sometimes, though, when we're confronted by another pond or another silo, to many folks it's like being cuffed upside the head because we take our worldview as being so shared by absolutely everyone in the world that when we come up with another group or another person where it isn't, we find it actually startling I I remember in grade seven and eight we moved from Bathurst and Wilson to Thornhill Ontario which uh, back in the day was predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and I was one of a a small handful of Jews now in a school of a couple hundred students Uh, the paradigm shift for me where the whole world is Jewish uh, but now I'm in a community where it isn't I didn't changed my paradigm. I still thought the whole world was Jewish, except Thornhill. And we call that a logical fallacy. It's logical because it makes sense how I would think that way, but it's a fallacy because it's not true. And so many folks in conflict, many folks in relationships, they're filled with these logical fallacies. Uh, Another way that that's discussed more currently uh, in our profession is unconscious bias. We have these unconscious ways of seeing things that we don't realize by are, are biased, uh, that they, they're, they're a narrower point of view.
0: When people are going through their stuff, don't they see themselves as being the right one and the other one as being the wrong one?
2: Well, of course. So, you know, there in grade seven and eight, I thought, you know, being Jewish was the best thing to be. I don't understand why you're not Jewish. I don't even understand why you're celebrating Christmas. I had no appreciation then that I was actually the minority. I thought I was still part of the majority in a place where there just happened to be a larger pocket of non-Jewish people. So we get locked into our worldview, and it's not, it's like we need other folks to help us to understand, to educate, ex-Duco, to bring out. Uh, ex-duco from uh, educate from the latin ex-duco to bring out uh, so that we have a broader deeper uh, greater understanding of what's going on around us and why and we do that in mediation by the way how's that well we help people to see hopefully beyond themselves to take in the world view of the other you know there's that classic example of mediation two chefs arguing in the kitchen over a dozen lemons and there's only a dozen lemons to be had and they're fighting and fighting and causing a ruckus the dishwasher comes forward and says chefs what are you arguing about well there's only one dozen lemons and we each need a dozen lemons and so so the dishwasher the this person turns to one chef and says what are you cooking tonight i'm cooking my chicken dish i need the rind of a dozen lemons turns to the other chef what are you cooking tonight I'm cooking a lemon meringue pie. I need the juice of a dozen lemons. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the discussion is had, the chefs realize they can share the dozen lemons. This is this is classic mediation. Yeah, we but each chef had entered into it with a worldview that says I need all of this. Yeah. And without all of this, with you taking it, there's no way to share. I'm going to be thinking that you need the rind just as I need the rind, and the other one's thinking, I think you're going to want the, the juice just as I need the juice. The dishwasher brought them out of themselves, ex-duco. They brought out, educated, helped to understand what was going on for the other and what their true interests in the lemons were, and then we can reach a resolution.
0: Yeah, for my training, the, the it's the orange metaphor with regard to your lemon metaphor mm-hmm. and so you know people look at things from the surface and, and what we try to encourage people to do is be curious and wonder what you don't know and that's where you need to go to explore to pull out, bring to light the yeah. information of the interests per se
2: yes and that's why as the mediator we're not worried in the agreement you come to where we concern ourselves with facilitating that very process How is it you're looking at the world? Might there be some logical fallacies? Let me be curious. Let me understand what you're thinking is. What's underneath it? What are you trying to achieve? Where does this come from? What is it about? And we want to do that on both sides so that they are privy to each other's conversation, each other's thinking, each other's process. Where are they coming from? And hopefully with that deeper, richer, broader understanding, sometimes these conflicts, they just evaporate.
0: Well, a lot of time it's the unknowns that people are unaware, of course, and they fear and they feel threatened by. And when, Mm -hmm. as a mediator, you can bring insight and light to those unknowns that people have a greater sense of connecting and maybe appreciating and somewhat recognizing, and then hopefully some way transitioning to a closer kind of connection.
2: Very often conflicts are about um, access to resources. Um, being near my child, that's an access to resource. I want all the time I can have with my child. Well, so do I, but how are you going to use your time? How are you going to, when am I available? When are you available? You know, I see so many parents they come up with with parenting plans, the, di- the division of time that a child is with one parent or the other, that is actually unworkable because they're concentrating on, I just want to know that the child is in my home on these dates and these times. But they never ask themselves a question, but am I available? Maybe I'm at work at that particular time. What is my schedule? And so when we can help people step back from the brink without fearing they're losing a relationship, without fearing they're losing a resource, and step back and say from a practical perspective, when are you available? When are you available? What is your child used to? What will the child's experience in this be? What are you trying to achieve? Where do you see yourself in terms of your relationship now that things have changed? Do you worry about having a relationship in the absence of being in the home together? And so given we have similar concerns, how can we appease each other's concerns at no one else's expense?
0: We have our own lived experiences, so as a professional mediator, third party, how do your own lived experiences impact a process or can they impact a process?
2: Yeah, you know. Uh, so I, I've spoken about a few lived experiences already. You know, having grown up Jewish at Baptist and Wilson, and and then uh, moving to Thornhill, as I mentioned at the time, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and realizing that there are these vast uh, paradigm shifts and these these. Parad- Hello, Gary. Gary,
0: are you there? We disconnected. Okay, so. Oopsie. All right, so we'll uh, have him call back and go from there, and hopefully... Um, so, Joni, let's uh, wait well, for him to call back. In the meantime, let's have a conversation.
1: Okay, I, I was just thinking about... Oh, there, I think he's calling back. But I was thinking about, just as you were kind of leading into, what kinds of your own experiences might affect how you show up in the mediation with these parents. What kinds of biases might you have or or um, preferences might you have that, that influence the way you handle the process? Such as, let's say, one, one parent is being really um, combative, really not wanting to listen at all, not wanting to budge an inch, not really caring how anyone else feels, whatever. But um, how, how do you handle it when someone kind of pokes at your buttons um, in, in these kinds of situations? So, Gary, you're there. I yes, no-
2: I am. Yeah, so, so, you know, we're all born human first. And so, you know, that question, if somebody presses our buttons, we all have buttons. Um, the challenge for the mediator is to recognize their own buttons, that we do have them and if pushed upon to be transparent about it, this is my view anyway, that uh, to say, well, you know, I may have some biases or I may, may see this situation and have concerns. Uh, so the degree to which I can acknowledge it and yet at the same time keep it separate from what is your experience and what your needs are. So this is, this is what makes a professional mediator a professional mediator that we do reflect upon ourselves what we're bringing to a situation. And so that if we are triggered, because uh, everyone can get triggered, by the way, that that's just part of being human, that we know how to manage that in the interests of the people that we are serving.
0: What are the potential concerns that a mediator could benefit from being aware of as they facilitate a process? How does one help prepare themselves as a third party?
2: Right. So, you know, uh, as a mediator, we have to be comfortable uh, in conflict. I don't mean in, that, that we should be in We have to be conf- uh, comfortable being uh, surrounded by people in conflict. It can't scare us. The degree to which it scares us, we may be rendered uh, ineffective. So this is one of the things we have to be aware of. What are our triggers? What does scare us? How comfortable are we with others? Uh, in conflict. Can we intervene comfortably if people are, in a sense, uh, getting agitated or, or out of hand? Can we do so in a way that facilitates the process versus um, undermining it? So so rather than coming in from a place of power and control, hey, don't do this, da we say, um, you know, you may not realize it, but here's how you're coming across right now, or can you find another way of saying that? Because you, you, know, you may have lost your partner or, or the other party uh, with how you are, how you are um, uh, conveying your information. So, so we need to be aware of how we're affected and how we manage uh, when we may be feeling uh, pressured.
0: And I would add how we are also affecting the situation. Because well, we yes. as human bring beings you know, we that's bring inter- from yeah. the
2: top of the show, you know I was saying one of the things that that distinguishes the mediator is that we're trying to bring our calm yeah. to the situation so that the participants uh, can borrow our calm. You know the, 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 the neuropsychologists tell us that there's something called mirror neurons. It's kind of that monkey see monkey do that when you know one person gets agitated, there's a greater likelihood of uh, a similar uh, reaction in the other person. And, and that's apparently due in part to these mirror neurons. So if people are going to pick up on the behavior of others, it's incumbent upon the mediator to bring in a behavior that's good to be picked up on. And that's the con that we bring.
0: I I think there has to be also, in addition with the awareness, a connection of self-awareness so that we're mindful, not only what we actually are saying, what we're also doing, you know, the nonverbal components of uh, communication.
2: Yes, so our behavior has to be consistent with that. So uh, body language, are we sitting open, are we sitting uh, with our arms folded tightly in front of us? You know, I can say one thing yet um, in posture, Convey something else. You know, back in my family therapy days, uh, I'm going back to the mid uh, 1980s, we actually had a lot of training in front of uh, one way mirrors. And there would be a team of uh, colleagues behind the mirror observing what we are doing with our clients in front of the mirror. And these w- sessions would also be videotaped. And we'd have the luxury. Of debriefing and going over the videotapes and and looking at how we're coming across, saying what we're saying and the impact on the people that we are serving. These were wonderful learning opportunities. I don't know how available those kind of opportunities are now, but it is all about creating that self-awareness. How am I using myself? How am I coming across and how is that being received? by by the persons uh, whom we are serving.
0: Right, and so when we're in the midst of encouraging conversation amongst two people who are traditionally outside of the process, not getting along, and then someone says something, and then, quote, we have a facial expression, like a reaction, that could be misunderstood from its intention. And so we have to constantly be mindful and connect with, our body language, and our spoken words.
2: Yes. And, you know, uh, Greg, I quite enjoy what I do, and I enjoy uh, being curious. And when I'm unsure about how something is received by another person, when their body language signals to me that uh, maybe I didn't come across as I had intended, or maybe I'm just not understanding what their body language is conveying, Uh, I get curious. I say, you know, I just want to understand where your thinking is at. I want to understand how you received what I just said. I want to understand, um, you know, there was a look on your face, and I just don't know how to interpret it. Can you help me to understand uh, what you were thinking or what you were feeling? That healthy dose of curiosity that we bring, which is also from a place of nonjudgmentalness. We're just seeking to appreciate, to understand, to to try and figure out the experience of the other.
0: Right, and, and as a third person, you're also very aware of this happening in the room and so you're also confident to go there and not avoid it and ignore it because if it's not addressed in some way, it could come up in some way to undermine the whole process and any potential. Outcomes that you create or help yeah. the parties create Joni, you had something you wanted to share
1: yeah, also um, what you're what we're doing as mediators in the room is we're modeling uh, behavior both verbal and nonverbal and paraverbal behavior and showing our clients ways and strategies of bringing out people the other party's interests and understanding each other better so we're not. Telling people how they should communicate with each other, you know you should do this, you should do that, but we 're showing them in the way that we behave and it works
0: and that works for you So, you know people need to, based on their individuality, adapt their own approach and behavior mindset with matters as well
2: you know it 's not about us seeking to impose anything uh, we 're simply there. Um trying to understand, trying to facilitate. We don't have a dog in the fight. We're being curious and we're helping these parties uh, hopefully uh, lower the temperature between the two of them so that they may hear something from each other, come to understand something from each other that they hadn't been able to appreciate uh, previously. Um, And in so doing, uh, be more amenable to, to to saying what are the flexible solutions that we may be able to generate such that we can both, and I'll go back to, live with um, a mutually acceptable
0: outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us are challenged by trying to get people to participate, to agree to participate in a process. People's apprehension with getting involved. Why would anybody allow themselves in conflict to get involved in a mediation process, especially when they can't stand that other person and they have a history of negative interaction with them?
2: <laughs> Greg, that's a good question. Why would I get in the room with so and so? Right. And, you know, um, that's how many first calls to mediators begin. Uh, you know, well, you know, I was thinking about this, but I don't think the other side will ever agree to this. Or, you
0: mm-hmm. know,
2: why would I want to be in the same room uh, with that person? And, and so you know, sometimes, you know, we're presenting it as, you know, what is the alternative? You're going to be in a room somehow or other with this person to sort out this conflict one way or the other. And so let's talk about the various process options and what's at stake the, the impact of those process options, uh, what happens under any given uh, outcome and how durable are those outcomes. So, you know, and but the other place we can go to is, you know, what is your fear in coming? Uh, what, what do you think the other person's fears might be in coming? So we can still, you know, rather than looking at, you know, how does this stack up amidst other alternatives, we can also be curious and explore and you know, go go for um, that. You know, what is your experience? What are you afraid of? How can we make it more palatable? Uh, what do you think the other person's concerns or fears are uh, as well? Uh, so, starting mediation, rarely in the beginning of mediation, are people coming in with a kind of faith that says, "Oh, this is great. We're going to work everything out, and we're going to feel good at the end." Typically when people come to mediation, the relationship is very rocky. It's been problematic. There's been no trust. And so, you know, I accept personally that that's often the starting point in any mediation until some, you know, until people um, move through the process a bit and then see that uh, no one's being bashed, no one's being put down, no one's being uh, hurt. Uh, And in fact, you know, as we go through the process, people come to respect that they feel emotionally safe, that they feel heard and listened to, that they're able to generate um, other points of view. And so while getting there may be arduous, over time being there becomes much more palatable. And in fact, for many folks, actually quite enjoyable.
0: What opportunities does mediation potentially offer people as a means for dealing with their relationship issues that a court process does not?
2: Yeah, well, you know, when you go to court, it's a race to the bottom. I'm going to win to the degree to which I trash the other. And you have to appreciate that's a reciprocal um, job that people are doing. So as I'm trashing you, you're trashing me. And when we trash one another, there is, there is just nothing left for an ongoing relationship. Now, how does that work when you have to co-parent on an ongoing uh, basis? When the pro- court process so undermines our feelings for each other and our ability to work together, that means that regardless of whatever the courts may order, the likelihood of success in, in terms of co-parenting uh, collaborating, um, having reasonable feelings to one another is really diminished. What, that, what does that mean for the kids? That means that these kids have not only lived through a war zone, but with the scorched earth um, approach, there's very little left uh, in terms of them being able to see uh, parents get along uh, collaboratively, uh, co parenting. Mediation, however, is not about throwing the other person under the bus. It's not that race to the bottom. Mediation is about finding the best in people, elevating that best. And it's not to say that people don't come to mediation with problems. People come to mediation with all sorts of problems, up to and including violence, addictions, uh,
1: uh,
0: um, all sorts of Mental health, yeah.
2: But in mediation, rather than trying to trash the other person, we try to understand, we try to support, we try to help them be the best versions of themselves they can be. And, and because of that, mediation has the capacity to not just uh, restore relationships, but actually elevate them. And so the children uh, that we see whose parents go to mediation, These children overall tend to be better adjusted, less mental health problems, less behavioral problems. Why? Because the parents aren't beating each other up to which the kids are then exposed. And because the parents haven't beaten each other up but they've learned how to communicate because that's what we're doing in a mediation process. They've learned to communicate that when the mediation is over, they can take the skills that they've been subject to and immersed in from mediation, they can take those skills and apply it to their relationship on an ongoing basis. In so doing, they're also role modeling to their own children that we can resolve conflict peacefully. So now these kids, they can go to school, concentrate on their schoolwork, and not worry while they're at school that somehow or other their parents may be harming themselves. So mediation has so much to offer, for so many reasons that that, it, that if people better understood the the um, promise, in a sense, of mediation, you, you'd have to wonder why they would ever want to go to court.
0: That's a uh, that's another show for sure, <laughs> another conversation, because we could talk about that I could endlessly. Talk about this stuff. Yeah. are a
2: whole other show, Craig.
0: Absolutely. I, you know, I can I obviously feel your, your passion for the uh, the work that you do and the work uh, that many of us are involved with. So what suggestions can you share as to how an individual in conflict can help themselves to better deal with conflict within that relationship, especially to avoid ever going to court?
2: Yeah. So, you know, so you're in conflict. Before throwing that... that First, uh, volley or let's say you're the recipient of a volley somebody you know you get a nasty blame and demand letter from uh, your former partner's lawyer and uh, it does trigger people uh, Greg it, yep. it sends them over the moon with fear anger anxiety the challenge is to take that deep breath and not respond in kind but to to find yourself hopefully a mediator a reasonable family law lawyer who can say, you know, we've received your letter, we're still wondering if we can at least get together to discuss these things civilly. And so despite despite what's being thrown at you, you want to always show your better self.
0: Which can be hard for people to do because, you know, as human beings, we react, we have emotions, uh, we're we're conditioned by many things in our environment and we just how many people actually walk their own true path
2: so to that end there's another service uh, that many of us who do mediation we also provide not everyone but some do and that's called the separation coach and so a separation coach works with only one party Mm
0: -hmm. and
2: it's to help that party hopefully be the better version of themselves To support them, to help them to to develop strategies for managing more peacefully whatever is coming from them uh, at them from the other side, and so you know if we look at conflict as a tug of war, and you know there was a great book by um, uh, Harvey Brownstein Brownstone Brownstein or Brownstone Brownstone
0: Justice Brownstone Thank
2: you Justice Brownstone called Tug of War. And, you know, he describes the family court system. But all we need for a tug of war to end is for one party to let go of the rope. So I do have folks who come to me um, to help them out as a separation coach. And when they first come, they may be thinking, boy, Derenfeld's going to help us fight better, stronger, Mm -hmm. harder. No, it's not about fighting better, stronger, harder. It's about knowing how to return information in a way that's non-inflammatory, that, that's peaceful, and with a view to peace-making. And so if one party can resist, you know, those motor neurons, monkey see, monkey do, if one party can raise above that with the support of the separation coach, we can be remarkably helpful at lowering the temperature.
0: Yes, helping people transition from where they're at to hopefully... A better place, and especially as they self-determine for themselves, because we're not going to be there for them afterward. Yeah. So uh, I've got to say thank you very much for, you know, being with us and having this and um, great conversation. I guess I've got to say good night for tonight.
2: Greg, it, it's been an absolute pleasure being with you this evening. Hopefully, that um, our conversation was uh, of value to your listeners.
0: Well, eventually, when I get time, I'll uh, edit it. Make it as a podcast, and it can be disseminated for everybody to benefit from. So Awesome. Thank
2: Let me know when that happens, and I'll uh, share it with my social media.
0: Absolutely. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for sharing. Have a good night. All the best. All right. You've been uh, listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM, Voices Latinos.